Dear friends, I have a gigantic episode for you today, starring a unique and indeed gigantic talent, Marnie Nixon. We're going to explore many different aspects of her artistry, her extraordinary versatility, her chameleon-like ability to imitate the biggest Hollywood stars when she dubbed her singing voice into their performances. I have a special guest today, my pal Thomas Bagwell, who knew Marnie well for the last 25 years of her life. He's recorded his reminiscences of her, and I will be dropping them in periodically over the course of this episode. And what a great way to start off than with this song, which has a very special connection to Marnie Nixon. Do you know what it is? If not, I will tell you later on in the episode. Thank you for being a friend Travel down a road and back again Your heart is true You're a pal and a confidant Ashamed to say, I hope it always will stay this way. My hat is off, won't you stand up and take a bow? so glad to talk about my friend Marnie Nixon. She was just such a wonderful lady. To be friends with someone who had done so much in the field of music, entertainment, movies, symphony concerts, leader recitals, I mean, the woman studied with Lotta Lehmann, all this stuff was just such a thrill. Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. Each week, you will encounter me, Daniel Guntlach, as your host, guiding you along a magical route that will bring us closer to the voices of those singers that most enchant and transform us, no matter what else is going on in the world. Thank you for joining me on that path. This week's episode. Marnie Nixon, of course, is most famous for having dubbed the singing voices of Deborah Carr in The King and I, Natalie Wood in West Side Story, and Audrey Hepburn in My Fair Lady. Listen to how she is able to bring Audrey Hepburn's speech patterns into her singing performance, thereby creating a seamlessly blended performance of speech and song. Bed, bed, I couldn't go to bed. My head's too light to try to set it down. Sleep, sleep, 
I couldn't sleep tonight, not for all the jewels in the crown. I could have danced all night, I could have danced all night, and still have begged for more. I could have spread my wings and done a thousand things I've never Nixon was so much more than just the so-called ghostess with the mostest, as she was dubbed in the early 1960s. Let's just do a very quick overhaul of the wide range of material that she sang. First of all, from Robert Kraft's recording released in 1957 of the complete published works of Anton Webern, Here's her performance of the song Wie bin ich froh, Opus 25, number 1. She is accompanied here by Leonard Stein, who is going to pop up more than once in the course of this episode. Marnie did a lot of work in the movies, and not just dubbing. She often appears also as a disembodied voice forming part of the orchestral texture in a film's musical soundtrack. For instance, here's my favorite example, music composed by none other than George Antile for a very, very strange and haunting film originally called Dementia, later re-released as Daughter of Horror. This is the main theme which is heard in various manifestations over and over in the course of this movie, which features absolutely no spoken dialogue, which means that her vocal contribution adds so much. The music in this case was arranged, orchestrated, and conducted by her then-husband, Ernest Gold whom we shall also re-encounter later in the episode.
I mentioned that Marnie had dubbed Deborah Carr in The King and I. That was her first big dubbing job, and in some ways the most virtuosic, and we will examine that later on in the episode. But for now, I do want to play you another clip of Marnie dubbing the voice of Deborah Carr, who portrayed a cabaret singer in the film An Affair to Remember. For that gig, Marnie dubbed three or four diegetic songs that Deborah Carr's character portrays, usually on the nightclub stage. My favorite is this one called Continuer, in which she sings with this fake French accent that I find absolutely delightful. The song is by none other than Harry Warren, with words by Leo McCary and Harold Adamson. This film was released in 1957. seventies, Marnie moved to Seattle with her second husband, and while she lived there, she starred in a children's television show called Boomerang. She won four Emmys for Best Actress in a Children's Television Show over the course of the show's five-year run. This is the theme song, and I imagine that if you grew up in the Pacific Northwest... While this show was being broadcast and rebroadcast, this might be a very familiar song to you. A boomerang, a boomerang, what does it do? What does it do? It comes back to you. It comes back to you. A boomerang, a boomerang, bing bong bang is boomerang. You throw a ball against a wall, and what does it do? It comes back to you. It 
comes back to you. A boomerang, a boomerang. Bing, bong, bang, it's boomerang. Marnie Nixon's career lasted more than six decades. And after she moved to New York in the 1980s, she experienced a wondrous late career resurgence that centered around her appearance in various stage productions of both new and old work on Broadway and off-Broadway. In the year 2008, she took part in the first commercial recording of the complete score of Rodgers and Hammerstein's concept musical Allegro which came right after Oklahoma and was a distinct flop. In that studio recording, she portrays the main character's grandmother, and here she is singing this brief but very beautiful little song entitled, appropriately enough, I Know It Can Happen Again. Starting out so foolishly small, it's hard to believe you will grow. To believe that things like you can ever turn out to be men, but I've seen it happen before, so I know it can happen again. Food and sleep and plenty of soap, molasses and sulfur and All of a sudden you're mad I have seen it happen before And I know it can happen again And I know it can happen again Margaret Nixon McEthran was born on the 22nd of February, 1930, in Altadena, California, into a highly musical family. Her mother took the first syllable of her daughter's first name and the first syllable of her middle name and combined them, and she was forever after known as Marnie, but Marnie without the E. Marnie's initial instrument was the violin, which she played in an orchestra comprised entirely of family members, each playing their own instrument. I think I'm going to let Thomas speak a little bit right now about one of his many professional connections with Marnie Nixon. When I taught at the Manus College of Music, I had the opportunity to interview various people in the musical world, the operatic world, composers, etc., for graduate-level voice students at the Manus College of Music. And I decided I was going to interview Marnie Nixon. And she was thrilled to do it and came over and told all these fantastic stories for the students, all of which they just couldn't believe because her life has taken so many amazing directions and she's been involved with everyone. She told the story of when she was young, her 
mother sent her and I believe one of her sisters out to be extras, little kids in movies. She was a very little kid and they lived in um, Hollywood in Los Angeles. Her mother would send her to MGM and the other studios to be extras in various movies and they would pick up a little money and whatnot. And I, I said, Marnie, do you remember some of the movies you were in when you were a little girl? And she stopped for a second. She says, well, I was in Gone with the Wind <laughs> and I just died. I, I couldn't believe it. She was in Gone with the Wind. Yes. Anyway, um, she told the story of when she was a high school girl. She had the job of delivering mail to the various stars' bungalows. And they said, beware of Judy Garland. Uh, you know, she's crazy and she'll yell at you and all this stuff. And she says, oh, it's not so bad. So she gingerly knocked on the door of, of uh, Judy Garland's bungalow one day to deliver the mail. And no one was there, but she had the mail. So she crept in and put it on the desk. And as she goes around to leave the room, ah, she hears Judy Garland screaming and yelling at her and Marty just runs out the door. That was her Judy Garland story. But she has another Judy Garland connection, which is truly amazing too. When she was a little girl, she sang in some of these movies and, you know, in choirs in town in Los Angeles and whatnot. And she was on the call sheet to do Munchkin voices in The Wizard of Oz. But on the day, they decided to use the actual actors' voices rather than kids. But she was on the call sheet. She said, I used to have that call sheet. It says Judy Garland on it and my name, and I don't know where it is. Love that story. Marnie may have started out on the violin, but eventually she began serious vocal study with the Viennese opera and operetta soprano Vera Schwarz who, like so many other European musicians and artists, both before and after World War II, had settled in the United States, and more particularly in California. Schwartz is no doubt most famous today for her stage and recorded collaborations with the great Richard Tauber. Here she is singing one of my favorite operetta bits, Du sollst der Kaiser meiner Seele sein, one of those operetta evergreens composed by Robert Stolz. appearance on the concert platform was a performance of the songs of Charles Ives, a composer that she performed over the course of her entire career. Here's a 1967 recording of Charles Ives's song from The Swimmers, an excerpt of a text by Lewis 
Untermeyer, in which Marnie is accompanied by the British pianist and composer John McCabe. professional associations was with the conductor Roger Wagner, a Frenchman, so I guess it was Roger Wagner, who conducted the Roger Wagner Chorale, in which such operatic luminaries as Carol Neblet and Marilyn Horn also appeared in their salad days. Through that association, Marnie started making some very important connections, including with Igor Stravinsky, who, along with the recently deceased Arnold Schoenberg, was one of those European transplants to California. His amanuensis was Robert Kraft, who oversaw many of Stravinsky's recordings, sometimes even conducting them himself. Marnie took part in a 1954 recording of miscellaneous Stravinsky works in which she performed three short cycles, and we're going to hear the song The Drake, the first of his four Russian songs, set to a traditional Russian text and translated by God Knows Who. Anyway, this recording's from 1954, and these songs were originally, I believe, for just piano, but Stravinsky, being Stravinsky, was always figuring out ways to reconfigure his work so that he could continue to get royalties on it, and I suspect that was the motivation for rescoring these four Russian songs. We hear Arthur Gleghorn on the flute, Dorothy Remsen on the harp, and Jack Marshall on guitar. Seven ducklings at home And you're three 
think it's time to let Thomas speak up again. He's going to tell us about how he met Marnie Nixon. I'll tell you how I met her. I was very young and naive and ambitious and all this, and I had been familiar with her work as a ghost, you know, in movies and her recordings, Webern and things like that. I mean, just everything she could do, Schoenberg. And I was studying the Schoenberg Bretel Lieder, which she had been the first to record, and it's an incredible recording, her version of Bretel Lieder. <laughs> By the way, the LP cover is one of the greatest album covers of the 1970s, if you ask me. I'm going to interrupt for just a moment so that I can play you one of those Bretel Lieder as she recorded them in 1975. Arnold Schoenberg's son pulled these songs out of a drawer and gave them to the pianist Leonard Stein, who worked with Schoenberg in his final years, sort of the way that Robert Kraft worked with Stravinsky. When Marnie tried to get these pieces published and recorded, she initially met with a lot of resistance sometimes from within the Schoenberg camp, who, in one case, insisted that Schoenberg had not written any cabaret songs. This might be sort of amusing for us from our perspective, because these songs are now standard repertoire. But back in 1975, she was a pathbreaker performing and recording these for the very first time. So here's one of those songs, the Arie Aus dem Spiegel von Arkadien, set to a text by Immanuel Schikaneda, whom we know as the librettist, of course, and the original Papageno from Mozart's Magic Flute. Leonard Stein is once again the pianist. Now, 
Thomas will tell us about his first meeting with Marnie, working on these Bretelieder. This will be followed by the recording that they made together of the first of those Bretelieder Galatea, set to a text by Frank Wedekind. I was studying this for a recital back um, home in Birmingham, Alabama, but I was living in New York and studying at the Manus College of Music, and I said, I'm just going to call her up. Let's see if she's in the phone book. So I picked up the Manhattan phone book when there was such a thing, called her up, said, would you coach me on the Breda leader? She goes, well, I've never coached a pianist, but sure. And so we made an appointment came over and um, I just started playing them on her piano and she sort of showed me a little bit about the rubato and she uh, used the name Sigmund Romberg and I had never heard of him before. And she says, oh yeah, this is all out of the operetta and all of this. And so I had to learn about all of that. And she would sing a few phrases here and there and tell me the story about how she would stage this. And, and it was just so fascinating. And then every once in a while that voice would come out and I would say, oh my God, I'm playing for Marnie Nixon. You know, it's just incredible. Just incredible. I was probably 18 years old. Yeah, that sounds right. A second year at the Manus College of Music. Anyway, so she came to a recital that I did there, a little student recital. She brought her husband, and she brought a rose for me. And I kept that rose for 20 years in my art history book. So when I was going to uh, move to Denmark, uh, I was getting rid of a bunch of things, and this giant art history book was there, and the beautiful rose. And I said, well, maybe it's time to get rid of this rose, you know. And pretty soon after that, Marnie died. So I don't know what that says. But anyway, I was friends with her uh, from when I was 18 until she died. I asked Marnie to direct a presentation of the Spanish songbook of Hugo Wolf that I was putting together for the Austrian Cultural Forum. We had a lot of fun with that. She was quite a brilliant director working on how to embody these complicated Hugo Wolf songs in a dramatic context. I had put together kind of a scenario and changed all the order and made it into a story of a mother and two children and who knows, we had a lot of fun with it. But anyway, she helped us tremendously with that. And then uh, I was doing some more Hugo Wolf concerts at the Austrian Cultural Forum and she sang a couple of songs and they were great and we had a lot of fun working on them and then the Lata Lehmann Foundation was putting together a tribute album from all of the famous students of Lata Lehmann talking about Lehmann their experiences with her and then perhaps even recording if they wanted to and Marnie and I recorded guess what Breta leader of Schoenberg, the very first one. So I was just thrilled, thrilled. It was one of the best days of my life. I'm singing a Schoenberg cabaret song called Galatea. I was lucky enough in the 70s to be handed these songs to record for the first time. And of course, the first thing that came to my mind was Lottie Lehmann, who was quite revolutionary, I think, in emphasizing the fact that there should not only be this wonderful collaboration between the pianists, it's like chamber music with the singer, but that the text should be personalized, that it should have a personal meaning, the attitude about the song, not only the words, but you had to have a subtext, like a real actor would do. And I would like to contribute this song in memory of her. Thank you. 
She made so many recordings. I encourage everyone to find them all and just marvel at the incredible talents of this woman. Mary Poppins, um, Herzgewächse of Schoenberg. You know, she could have been a great big um, opera singer. Life took different directions. Okay, Thomas, I take up your challenge. But before I play Poppins and Schoenberg for you, I do want to just say a word about Marnie's operatic performances. Yes, Marnie could have sung opera, and she did sing opera. Quite a bit of it, in fact. She performed the role of Zerbinetta at the Music Academy of the West, under the direction of Lotte Lehmann. She performed numerous roles at Seattle Opera when she lived up there in the 1970s, roles including Uzetta and Violetta in Traviata. And now is the time for me to note that there are so many recordings of such varied material that constitute Marnie Nixon's legacy, and there was no way I could put everything into a full episode. In fact, I had enough to make a second episode, and I'm going to do that this weekend, and there are one or two operatic selections on there as well. As well as, oh my god, Exotica? The Mr. Magoo Mother Goose Suite? Really trashy 50s arrangements from South Pacific? More of her recorded output for Disneyland Records? Look, if you want to become a Patreon supporter and not only contribute to the financial health of this podcast, but also gain access to this forthcoming bonus episode on Marnie Nixon, but the dozens of other bonus episodes that I have already produced, please go to patreon.com slash countermelody, and you can become a supporter of the podcast. It's so easy. You either make a monthly or a yearly contribution, and you help me out enormously, but then you get to listen to all of the bonus episodes as well, including ones that I've produced in just... The past few weeks, Ellie Ameling, Roberta Alexander, Anna Moffo, Nicolai Guedda, Eugene Holmes, Martina Arroyo. The list goes on and on. And by the way, these are all brand new material. Supplementary episodes to the main ones that are available to everyone. Check it out, kids. Check it out. All right, now back to our scheduled programming. Mary. Poppins. 
Here's Marnie Nixon in the 1964 recording for Disneyland Records of songs from the Mary Poppins film. Now, I had this record when I was a kid, and I confess it was very confusing to me because it sure as heck sounded just like Julie Andrews to me. I really heard no difference between the soundtrack recording, which my cousins had, and this studio recording that I had in my own collection of Kitty records. Just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, the medicine go down, medicine go down. Just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down in the most delightful Every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. You find the fun and stop the job's a game. And every task you undertake becomes a piece of cake, a lark, a spree. It's very clear to see that a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. The medicine go down, medicine go down. Just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down in the most delightful way. A robin feathering his nest has very little time to rest while gathering his bits of twine and twig. The white intent in his pursuit, he has a merry tune to toot. He knows a song will move Thomas also mentioned the Herzgewächse, that is a German translation of a poem by none other than Maurice Mitterlinck. This represents Schoenberg in a completely different vein from the Brettelieder, one that's probably more familiar to those 12-tone purists out there. This is a 1956 recording under the baton of Robert Kraft, in which the ensemble consists of Barbara Schick, harp, Wesley Kuhnle on harmonium, and, once again, Leonard Stein, this time playing Celeste. Stark in seinem Schlummer. 
Now, so I kind of lost touch with her. I mean, I would see her on the street and things like that. And, but I, I didn't really have much contact with her until our mutual friend June LaBelle, a uh, radio personality in New York, put us together again because June had been putting these concerts together at the Grace Rainey Rogers Auditorium in New York at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Wide-ranging concerts, and June knew everybody. And so Marnie would often be on these concerts, and she'd be telling stories and, and whatnot. And one time, Marnie and I had a scene, the scene Getting to Know You from The King and I, which I was in The King and I when I was a child. I was child number one, Birmingham, Alabama. Marnie had dubbed Deborah Carr, and so what we had to do was show the film, and they would turn the sound down, and Marnie sang it, and I played it. And it's very difficult because you can't speed up, you can't slow down, it has to be exactly right. Otherwise, the rest of the scene is messed up. So we had a lot of fun with that, Marnie talking about her ghosting stories, all of which she told in her fantastic autobiography, which I recommend to everybody. Because every one of these ghosting experiences was completely different. I'm going to play you a song that did not end up in the King and I film, but which, thank goodness, was released on the soundtrack recording, for which, notoriously, Marnie Nixon received no credit and no royalties. This is the song, Shall I Tell You What I Think of You? And it's one of those songs that's half sung and half spoken, and it is, once again, a tribute to Marnie Nixon's chameleon-like vocal quality that she and Deborah Carr are able to so closely intertwine their performances so that the affect and the speech patterns remain the same from speaking to singing and back. Because I'm a woman, you think like every woman, I have to be a slave or concubine. You conceited, self-indulgent, libertine. Libertine. How I wish I'd call him that. Right to his face. Libertine. And while we're on the subject, sire, there are certain goings-on around this place that I wish to tell you I do not admire. I do not like polygamy or even moderate bigamy. I realize that in your eyes that clearly makes a prigamy. But I am from a civilized land called Wales, where men like you are kept in county jails. In your pursuit of pleasure, you have mistresses who treasure you. They have no ken of other men beside whom they can measure you. A flock of sheep and you the only ram. No wonder you're the wonder of Siam. Oh, I'm really rather glad I didn't say that. With the women right there. And the children. The children, the children, I'll not forget the children. No matter where I go, I'll always see those little faces looking up at me. Your Majesty. Shall I tell you what I think of you? You're spoiled. You're a conscientious worker, but you're spoiled. Giving credit where it's due, there is much I like in you. 
But it's also very true that you're spoiled. Everybody is always bowing to the king. Everybody has to grovel to the king. By your Buddha, you are blessed. By your ladies, you're caressed. But the one who loves you best. Now, Thomas speaks as well about the vocal quality of Marnie's speaking voice. Since this is a vocal podcast, I wanted to say something about her speaking voice, which I found to be very, very interesting. She had one of these extremely distinct, high-placed voices that if you heard her, it was literally a hop, skip, and a jump to her singing voice. Just the color of it was so distinct and so beautifully placed all the way to the end. I mean, she sounded like, you know, high soprano until the end. Now, of course, we've already heard an example of that from the year 2005 when they made that recording together. But let's listen to this excerpt from more than 40 years earlier, introducing one of the Conteloube Chant d'Auvergne, which she performed with Leonard Bernstein and the New York Philharmonic on one of his Young People's Concerts. This one was titled Folk Music in the Concert Hall, and it was first broadcast in April of 1961. That last song was a love song sung by a young farm girl to her lover. In this next song, the same girl sits down to her spinning wheel and spins. And she says, when I was a little girl, I used to watch the sheep. And then she spins a little and she makes fast little spinning sounds. Then she says, there was a shepherd with me and he helped me watch the sheep. He asked me for a kiss, and out of gratitude, I gave him two. Then she spins again and says, Oh, 
Autobiography, Marnie describes how she saved the day for this live performance when the teleprompter failed and she had to describe each of the songs off the top of her head, which gained her the eternal friendship and respect of Leonard Bernstein. Now, she posits in her book that her work with Bernstein on the concert platform may have led to her being engaged to dub the voice of Natalie Wood in the 1961 film of West Side Story. Of course, there's no way to know this for certain, but the great working relationship that these two shared is undisputed. Posits that it's possible that her association with Leonard Bernstein in the concert hall led to her being engaged to do the dubbing for Natalie Wood in the 1961 film of West Side Story. Unlike her personal dynamic with Bernstein, Marnie and Natalie Wood did not get along at all. It was not a happy experience for either of them, for differing reasons. Natalie Wood, who was the big name in this cast, had made it known that she wanted to do her own singing. Now, if you've ever heard her singing in Gypsy, for instance, you know that singing the high-lying music of Maria would have been a pretty iffy proposition. According to Marnie in her autobiography, the producers promised Natalie that they would use her voice and were praising her to the sky for her attempts to create a suitable sung portrait of Maria. But always winking behind Natalie's back at Marnie as if to say, we all know this is never going to actually happen. So needless to say, the two really did not end up friends. Now many of these musicals Marnie ended up playing on stage In 1964, she played Liza Doolittle on stage at City Center in New York. But I don't believe she ever played Maria in West Side Story. So when she sang the big duet between Maria and Anita in a 2002 benefit concert for breast cancer, it was the first time she had ever sung the uncut duet. Originally, they had rehearsed this with a different Anita, but then that woman took sick, so Susan Egan jumped in at the last minute. Daniel Roth led the proceedings, which were accompanied by pianist Stephen Erdodi and the Angelus String Quartet. Oh, my God. 
So now I am going to present you with a number of selections which serve to highlight not only Marnie Nixon's versatility, but her musicianship, and even more than that, a profound ability to connect with the music through the text and thereby to impart the finest shades and the greatest depth of meaning. Let's start with Johann Sebastian Bach, who just this past week celebrated his birthday. And since I seem to do birthdays all over the place around here, why not celebrate Bach's? This is her single recording of a Bach cantata that was under the baton of none other than Robert Kraft, leading the so-called Columbia Symphony Orchestra, which was usually just a pickup group on either one coast or the other. Marnie tells the story of this recording in I Could Have Sung All Night, and I highly recommend it. It is a candid and no-holds-barred telling of her life from her own perspective. The day before she was to record her aria in the Tower Ode, she was in a car accident and left the hospital against doctor's orders to go make the record, and when she got there, she simply found that she couldn't hear properly and was singing everything flat. Robert Kraft was not at all sympathetic, so she told him to go fuck himself, and she walked out. Eventually, I think the next day or a couple days later, 
She went back and re-recorded the aria, and all was well. Anyway, a rather tumultuous story for such a profoundly pious aria. already discussed the recording of the Bretel Lieder on side two of that record, because remember, with LPs, you had to flip the record over to get to the other side. <laughs> yes, oh, those were the days. And around here, they still are the days. She also recorded for the very first time on that record with Leonard Stein nine early Schoenberg songs that had never seen the light of day before. And there are some gorgeous ones. I'm going to play you the shortest of them, Mädchen Frühling, that was set to a text by Richard Demel, An April wind, all the buds have sprung, the ground is sprouting, but why does his mouth remain closed? Sun and rain of May, all the flowers turning toward the light, the lovely light. Doesn't he feel it?
Marnie continued to record in the 1980s and recorded some magnificent albums, one of Jerome Kern, one of George Gershwin, one of the orchestrated version of Copland's Emily Dickinson poems, a couple with her ex-husband, Ernest Gold, of various orchestral song cycles, an unbelievably good recording of Forêt and Debussy Melodie, and an original cast recording of the off-Broadway production of a work called Taking My Turn by Gary William Friedman and Will Holt. We're going to sample most of those right now, and those that aren't on this podcast will be featured on the bonus episode. Okay? Deal? First, from the Jerome Kern album, an unbelievably tender and beautiful recording of a favorite song of mine, They Didn't Believe Me, which comes from the show The Girl from Utah. Who remembers that? But the song itself is a standard perhaps on the fringes of the great American songbook, but nevertheless a wonderful, memorable song. Both this and the Gershwin album were arranged and accompanied by the pianist Lincoln Mayorga. And this recording is from the year 1988. Don't know how it happened quite May have been the summer night May have been, well, who can say Things just happen anyway All I know is I said yes Hesitating more or less And you kissed me where I stood Just like any fellow would And when I told them How wonderful you French Melodie that I mentioned, which was recorded in 1983 with the pianist Armen Guzelimian, I have one Debussy song and one Forêt song, both settings of texts by Paul Verlaine. First is the Colloque Sentimental, the last of Debussy's six Fête Galante settings. This is a conversation between two ghosts walking through a misty park at dead of night. One 
of the ghosts passionately wishes to remember their former love, and the other voice remains, for the most part, unmoved and even hard-hearted. It's fascinating to hear Marnie, that great ghost singer herself, personify so vividly these two different ghosts.
And now, Faure's setting of Paul Verlaine's poem Prison. This was written when Verlaine himself was himself jailed, and he had just one little crack of light that he could see from his window, and he imagines life happening around him as he laments his lost and wasted youth. Marnie here summons such profound despair, and perhaps it's useful to remember here that she herself had a rather turbulent life, which you can read about in the autobiography, which I really, once again, strongly recommend. Marnie would occasionally record and perform with her ex-husband, Ernest Gold, who is probably best remembered today for having provided the music to the film Exodus, for which he won an Oscar. Their life was not always a happy one, but it produced three children, one of whom was the late singer-songwriter Andrew Gold, who in answer to your query about what Thank You for Being a Friend has to do with Marnie Nixon, he himself wrote. So not only did she come from a family of musicians, she also gave to the world a great musician in his own right. Sadly, he predeceased her in 2011. And it's perhaps here that the text of the next song he touches the broken heart, is particularly relevant. This is the final movement 
of the orchestral song cycle Avak the Healer by Armenian-American composer Alan Hovanis. It's scored for soprano and trumpet obligato. In this recording, which was made in 1975 in the presence of the composer himself, we hear Ernest Gold conducting, and Marnie is joined by the trumpeter Thomas Stevens. I mentioned Marnie's move after her second divorce to New York City, where she had a beautiful late career resurgence that included performances on and off Broadway of both new and revived material. It was here that she met her third husband, the musician Albert Block, to whom she was married from 1983 until his death in 2015. So right around the time that the two of them got together and got married, she was appearing in the show I mentioned called Taking My Turn. This was a counterpart to the 1970s show The Me Nobody Knows, which was composed by Gary William Friedman to lyrics by Will Holt. That show was 
focused on teenagers and taking my turn features older performers between the ages of 50 and 80. The performers included a number of some amazing singers and actors, not just Marnie, but also Margaret Whiting, Tiger Haynes, Sheila Smith, and Sissy Houston. Yes, Whitney's mother. Marnie's featured number in this is called Vivaldi, and it describes the experience of an older person who finds release from her fear in her joy of music. Marnie describes in her book the difficulties that she had in preparing this piece, but finally she found her center from advice that her friend, the cabaret singer Martha Schlamm, gave to her, who told her, Marnie, they want you to be yourself. That's why they hired you. And in fact, this gave her a freedom that prior to this she had not always consistently felt as an actor. On Sundays in the park, you're at a fiesta. Walk the world of sound, and under every tree, a flute and a recorder and guitar will play Vivaldi.
Now, we've heard Marnie singing quite a bit of Arnold Schoenberg today. Early songs, the Brettelieder, and the Stratospheric Herzgewächse. Another piece that she performed over the course of nearly her entire career was Schoenberg's Sui Generis Pierrot Lunaire, which is set for Sprechstimme, a voice intoning on pitch, sort of, half sung, half spoken. Late in her career, Marnie appeared in a theatricalized performance of this piece, led by Charles Prince, the son of the late Hal Prince, in which she donned Pierrot makeup and costume and gave a not always musically impeccable performance, but a fearless, explosive performance, which emphasized the more demonic, sinister elements of this very creepy piece. A live recording of this was released, and which is available for those who are curious to hear it. I myself have sung this piece. I also did it in a staged version. I don't think I was anywhere near as incendiary as Marnie is here. Here's her performance of the sixth song from the first part of this triumvirate piece called Madonna, which is a prayer to the mother of all sorrows, imploring her to climb upon the altar of the poet's verses. Blood streams from open wounds across her body, fresh gashes that, like her bloodshot eyes, are wide open. In the final strophe, the poet describes this decaying image of the Virgin Mary holding up the rotting body of her son to show all of mankind, and yet people look away in horror. And it's horror that she invokes here. Oh, 
perhaps the recording of Marnie Nixon that has most affected me as I prepared for this episode is the penultimate song from a cycle written for her by her husband, Ernest Gold, as their marriage was falling apart. This is a setting of the Edna St. Vincent Millay poem, Time Does Not Bring Relief. This recording was made in 1974, several years after their marriage ended in 1969. You all have lied who told me time would ease me of my pain. There are a hundred places where I fear to go. So with his memory they brim, and entering with relief some quiet place where never fell his foot or shone his face, I say, there is no memory of him here, and so stand stricken, remembering him.
In the last years of her life, Marnie Nixon had three different bouts of breast cancer, the last of which finally caused her death at the age of 86 on the 24th of July, 2016. Almost exactly 10 years before her death, she performed The Mother Abbess herself in a semi-staged performance of The Sound of Music with John Mauchery leading the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra. We hear in dialogue with Mother Abbess, the Maria of Melissa Erico. Maria, the love of a man and woman is holy too. Do you remember the first time we talked? You said you remembered your mother and father before they died. Do you remember were they happy? Oh, yes, Mother. They were very happy. But Maria, you were born of their happiness, of their love. And my child, you have a great capacity to love. What you must find out is how does God want you to, to spend your love? But, but I have pledged my life to God's service. I have pledged my life to God. My daughter, if you love this man, it does not mean that you love God less. You, 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 have to, you have to find out. You have to go back. Oh, please, Mother, don't ask me to do that. Please, let me stay here. Maria, this abbey is not to be used to hide from problems. You have to face them. You have to find the life that you were born to live. How do I find it? Look for it. Climb every mountain, search high and low, follow every byway, every path you know.
adjacent story to tell as the episode winds down. I was putting together a couple of concerts at the Austrian Cultural Forum in New York of songs of Schoenberg and Semlinski, of which there are many, many fabulous, fabulous songs. The Semlinski early songs, which nobody does. Anyway, I was studying these three atonal songs of Schoenberg, very difficult. And the first recording of it was um, on the Columbia series of uh, Complete Schoenberg that Robert Kraft did and Marnie was on and all these people. And uh, said Marjorie McKay mezzo-soprano singing them. Anyway, beautiful recording, gorgeous voice. And I said, who is this Marjorie McKay? And I said, I bet Marnie knows who she was. So I called up Marnie. Marnie, who is Marjorie McKay? Oh, she was a good friend of mine, sweet lady. We were in madrigals together for Robert Kraft. She babysat for my kids occasionally. We just had a lot of fun. Oh, and she was the one who dubbed Climb Every Mountain in the movie of The Sound of Music. Right. So that gives you an idea of the kind of work you could get if you were a very talented singer uh, in Hollywood in the 50s, 60s. I mean, that's incredible. Dear listeners... Thank you so much for joining me today. And dear Thomas, thank you so much for your beautiful reminiscences of Marnie, which I think have really enhanced our picture of her as a woman and our appreciation of her as an artist. As a reminder of her enormous versatility, I'm going to close with two very brief selections. First, Anton Webern's setting of a traditional German folk text, Der Tag ist vergangen. Die Nacht kommt herzu, gibt auch den Verstorbenen die ewige Ruhe. The day has passed, night is already here. Good night, O oh Mary, stay with me forever. The day has passed, and night is coming. Give also to the dead eternal rest. My dear friends, keep the song in your hearts. I'm Daniel Gundlach. Der Tag ist vergangen, die Nacht ist schon hier. Gute Nacht, oh Maria, bleib ewig bei mir. Der Tag ist vergangen, die Nacht kommt herzu. Gib auch den Verstorbenen die ewige Ruhe. Very, very sad when I heard about her death. And then I went to the memorial and heard all sorts of wonderful stories that didn't make it into her autobiography from her children and people who knew her and all. It was just such a sweet honor in my life to be friends with her. Such a wonderful lady, great, great artist. She sang all sorts of things and all of it beautifully. Viva Marnie! Go.
Yeah. 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 Yeah.